But wait, there's more. Hi, everybody. It's Terry O'Reilly here, and we're happy to announce something we've never offered before. It's our But Wait, There's More subscriber package. If you're a fan of Under the Influence, you'll get more than ever before. You'll get more bonus episodes like the live recording and audience Q&A we did recently at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival, exclusive for subscribers only. You'll get more podcasts with additional stories. You'll get early access so you can listen to all of our new shows before anyone else. You'll get all of our episodes, including archives, ad-free. Tisk tisk. I won't judge. You'll be invited to Ask Me Anything sit-down chats with yours truly. You'll get first dibs on tickets for live events. You'll get big discounts on Under the Influence merchandise. And that's only the beginning, all for a few bucks a month. Just go to our show page on Apple Podcasts and tap Try Free to start your free seven-day trial. Membership has its privileges. Hmm, you should copyright that. 
This gunfighter was the law for 20 years until a hate-ridden town took the law into its own hands and turned on the gunfighter. Richard Woodmark, rebel with a badge in Death of a Gunfighter. That little-known movie, released in 1969, changed a fundamental aspect of Hollywood. Star Richard Widmark wasn't getting along with director Robert Totten and arranged to have him replaced with director Don Siegel. Both directors claimed Widmark had overruled their decisions and neither director was happy with the final film. More important, neither director wanted to take credit for it. A Directors Guild meeting overseeing the dispute agreed that the film did not represent the vision of either director. So, a proposal was tabled. The directing credit was to be changed to protect the reputations of the filmmakers. Instead of using their real names, a fictional name would be used. The name Al Smith was suggested, but it was discovered there was actually a director named Al Smith. So, the Directors Guild settled on Alan Smithy. From that point on, whenever a director had lost creative control of a finished film, he could file a grievance, take his name off the film, and Alan Smithy would be credited instead. So, within Hollywood, whenever a director's credit said Alan Smithy, it was instantly understood the original director had disavowed the film. If you search the Internet Movie Database, you'll find over 20 very bad Alan Smithy films. In 1998, director Arthur Hiller shot a mockumentary on this very subject called an Alan Smithy film, Burn, Hollywood, Burn. The plot revolves around a director named Alan Smithy who directs a film starring Sylvester Stallone. The studio eventually takes control of the film away from Smithy and re-edits it. Smithy wants to disown the film. And when he tries to take his name off the movie, he discovers that his name is the same pseudonym the Directors Guild uses when a director wants to take his name off a movie. So, he has no option but to steal the film and burn it. But get a load of this. The director of this mockumentary, Arthur Hiller, didn't get along with the producer on the film. The film was taken away from Hiller and re-edited. It was art imitating life, imitating art. So guess what Arthur Hiller did? He took his name off the film, which meant that an Alan Smithy film, in the end, was directed by Alan Smithy. Believe it or not, there are quite a few Alan Smithies in the world of business, too. Inventors and business people who created products they later tried to distance themselves from. Sometimes it's because the product ended up being harmful. Other times, it was because of the way their product was used. And in most cases, the creators simply lost control of their creations. And it just may surprise you to learn what those inventions are. You're under the influence. Architect Victor Gruen had an interesting idea. 
As cities started expanding to the suburbs, he wanted to create a place where shoppers could run errands without the drawbacks of driving downtown. He wanted to model these communal areas like the old town squares of yesteryear, with promenades, green spaces, fountains, supermarkets, schools, and post offices. He prioritized pedestrians over cars. Gruen's creation became known as the Shopping Mall. The first one Gruen designed was in suburban Detroit in 1954. It caught on, and Gruen quickly became one of the busiest architects in the country. But other cities took Gruen's idea and began twisting it into something he hated and opposed. They took out the green spaces and closed the malls, packed them with stores, and surrounded them with seas of asphalt parking. Over time... Gruen went from being the shopping mall's inventor to its most vocal critic. He called them harmful, hideous, soulless shopping machines that alienated people instead of bringing them together. The father of the shopping mall refused to claim paternity. To his dying day, Victor Gruen despised what became of his invention. He wouldn't be the first inventor to feel that way. One day back in 1995, John Sylvan was sitting in his car outside an ATM when he started feeling ill. His heart was pounding, his head throbbed, he began experiencing tunnel vision. He suspected he was having a heart attack, so he rushed to the nearest hospital. In the emergency room, doctors did a number of tests on Sylvan and determined he wasn't having a heart attack. So they began asking him questions. Are you sleeping well? Are you eating properly? Are you exercising? Then they casually asked him how many cups of coffee he drank a day. Sylvan answered, around 30 or 40. The doctors just stared at him. 37-year-old John Sylvan was suffering from caffeine poisoning. But you have to understand something. Caffeine poisoning was an occupational hazard. For the three years leading up to that hospital visit, John Sylvan had been trying to revolutionize coffee making. Previously, Sylvan had been working a low-level job at a tech firm in Massachusetts. Part of the job entailed going around collecting money from his co-workers for the office coffee fund. More than that, he hated the office coffee. Everyone did. And the coffee vendors not only delivered bad coffee every week, they had a monopoly on the office market. Every day, bad coffee would sit in the pot, growing stale and cold. As coffee companies will tell you, the biggest consumer of coffee is the kitchen sink. So Sylvan had an idea to create single-serve coffee pods. That way, people could brew one cup of coffee of their choosing. Coffee and water wouldn't be wasted. All he needed to do was invent a machine that could brew single cups. First, Sylvan created single coffee pods, then tried prototype after prototype of coffee machines to brew them. Many of them exploded, plastering his kitchen with coffee grounds. Sylvan was also the official coffee taster, hence the 40 cups per day. When he finally managed to create a semi-reliable brewing machine, Sylvan christened the company Keurig, which was a Dutch word for excellence. The coffee pods were to be called K-Cups. 
When he started looking for investors, no one was interested. As a matter of fact, major coffee companies told him his invention would never catch on. But Sylvan believed in the potential of single-serve coffee pods. Even if he just managed to capture a fraction of the $40 billion coffee market, it would mean untold millions. And Sylvan had his eye on the office market. Eventually, Keurig found investors. The plan was to make inexpensive coffee brewing machines. The real money was in the K-cups. Early Keurig machines kept breaking down. But an interesting thing happened. When the machines broke, office workers would beg for a replacement. The convenience was catching on, and catching on in a big way. Sales started to explode, but so did the relationship between Sylvan and his investors. It got so bad that Sylvan left the company in 1997, selling his shares for just $50,000. By 2010, Keurig was on track to sell 3 million K-Cups. By 2014, that number jumped to $9.8 billion. The reason? The company had cracked the home market. But even though his idea became a multi-billion dollar operation, Sylvan doesn't look back with pride. The problem? Those 9 billion K-cups aren't biodegradable and can't be recycled. Founder John Sylvan never imagined K-cups would be used outside offices. But today, 40% of Canadian homes and 25% of American ones have single-serve coffee makers in their kitchens. Recent estimates say the amount of non-recyclable K-cups currently in landfills could circle the earth more than 12 times. And that's why John Sylvan regrets his invention. While Keurig says it is working on a sustainable K-cup, Sylvan doesn't believe the product will ever be fully recyclable. He says he feels bad sometimes that he ever invented it. And today, John Sylvan doesn't even own a Keurig coffee maker. Back in the late 1800s, Milton Wright was a traveling preacher. He would often bring home toys for his children from his travels. One day he brought home a toy whirlybird. Made of cork, bamboo, and paper, the whirlybird was powered by a rubber band which twirled its blades and made it airborne. It fascinated his two sons, Orville and Wilbur. When they grew up, Orville and Wilbur started a bicycle repair shop and began coming up with their own designs. The Wright brothers were tinkerers, but they never lost their fascination with flight. Around the world, some other inventors were having moderate success with gliders. That's when the Wright brothers decided to experiment with motorized flight. Through many prototypes and designs, the Wright brothers continued to refine their idea. Then, on December 17, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright made history with a powered, sustained, and controlled airplane flight that remained airborne for 59 seconds at a distance of 852 feet. It was an extraordinary achievement. Surprisingly, their invention didn't find a receptive audience in the U.S., Many people didn't believe the accomplishment. The press said the flights were too short to be important. One headline said, Flyers 
or liars. So Wilbur traveled to Europe and found a much more receptive audience there. Almost immediately, they started selling planes in Europe. Eventually, the Wright brothers sold their first airplane to the U.S. Army in 1909. Even though Wilbur died in 1912, Orville continued with the company. He sold 14 more planes to the Army for observation missions. Orville truly believed airplanes would prevent wars. He felt with aerial observation, it would be impossible to have surprise attacks. And because both sides would know what the other was doing at all times, the desire for war would wane. However, the military had other ideas. In 1911, Italy became the first country to use airplanes in warfare. It was in a war with Turkey and dropped hand grenades on enemy troops from the sky. While it's kind of shocking to imagine, early aerial dogfights were really pistol duels. Pilots actually carried handguns and rifles to try and shoot other pilots. In one noted encounter in 1914, a British airman ran out of ammo... Blimey! Take that! ...and simply threw the handgun at a German pilot. Ouch! By the end of World War I, there were observation planes, fighter planes, and multi-engine bombers that could carry thousands of pounds of bombs. Orville Wright was mortified at the destruction his beloved planes were inflicting. During World War II, over 300,000 warplanes were built. On his 74th birthday in 1945, Orville Wright's lifelong optimism about the role of the airplane as an instrument of peace had faded. While he loved his invention, he deplored the destruction it had caused. He said, We dared to hope we had invented something that would bring lasting peace to the earth, but we were wrong. We underestimated man's capacity to hate and to corrupt good means for an evil end. It would be a sentiment shared by quite a few other inventors in history. We'll be right back to our show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode, why not dip into our archives? Available wherever you download your pods. Go to terryoreilly.ca for a master episode list. Even as a kid, Philo Farnsworth was fascinated by electricity. At 13 years of age, he figured out how to use electricity to operate his farm's washing machine, sewing machine, and barn lights. One day, he found a stash of popular science magazines in the attic of his family's Idaho farmhouse and read about the possibility of television for the first time. The thought of sending pictures through the air enthralled him. By age 14, he had theorized the principles of electronic television. When I was 14, I was doing... Nothing. Precisely. Everyone in his family had farm chores, and young Philos was to plow the family potato field, which gave him a lot of time to think. One day, he stopped to survey the parallel rows of crops behind him. In that moment, he realized that a large image could be composed from smaller repeating lines if they were viewed from a distance. It was a profound insight. He noodled that insight for the next few years, and in 1927, at the age of 21, he generated the first electronic television image through the air from one room to another by scanning the image in a series of lines going back and forth a breakthrough inspired by his potato plowing. Television as we know it was born that day. Philo Farnsworth had a hope for his invention. He saw television as a marvelous teaching tool that could help eliminate illiteracy. He wanted it to allow people to see and learn about each other. That way, differences could be solved around conference tables without going to war. But it didn't turn out that way. When Philo Farnsworth looked back on his invention many years later, he wasn't a happy man. He felt he had created a monster. He believed very few people were being educated, that the world's problems had not been solved. He believed people wasted their lives spending so much time watching television because there was nothing worthwhile on it. He regretted his wonderful invention. Philo Farnsworth lived until 1971. When he died, the average TV set still contained over 100 components he had patented. By that time, almost every house in the nation had a television set. Except one. Philo Farnsworth never allowed a TV set into his home. When World War II ended... 
industry boomed in North America. With that came expanding workforces. Most office spaces at that time were open bullpens, with only executives enjoying offices with doors. Industrial designer Robert Probst felt the open-concept office was a wasteland. He believed it sapped vitality, blocked talent, and wasted effectiveness, health, and motivation. So, in 1968, he offered a better solution. He came up with a flexible, three-walled design that could be reshaped to any given need. It included multiple work surfaces, and the movable partitions provided a degree of privacy with a place to pin up works in progress. It let companies react to change quickly and inexpensively. He called his new design Action Office. The world called it Cubicles. Initially, cubicles launched to great reviews. People who had worked in noisy open areas welcomed the change. But that applause didn't last long. Soon companies looking to save money began cramming a lot of people into small spaces. The cubicles got smaller and smaller and smaller. Robert Probst didn't like what he saw. First, cubicles were never designed to be square. They were meant to be fluid and interesting. Secondly, his movable walls were designed to be raw material to be built on, but office managers saw them as finished furniture. Where the action office was meant to be shape-shifting, motivating, and inspiring, cubicles ended up being boxy, boring, and soulless. As one writer said, nothing conjures up dread and drudgery quicker than the word cubicle. Propst was outraged. He said the cubicalizing of people in modern corporations was monolithic insanity. He said the egg carton geometry created barren hellholes and a rat maze of boxes. Even though it was hated by workers and cursed by interior designers, the cubicle still claims the largest share of office furniture to this day. By the time Robert Props died in 2000, over 40 million people were working in cubicles. It would be the biggest regret of his career. One day at Sunday school, Anna Jarvis's mother told stories about notable mothers in the Bible, ending the lesson with a prayer that maybe someday someone would create a day to celebrate all that mothers have done for humanity. That lesson had a profound impact on Anna. When her mother passed away years later, Anna Jarvis was devastated and decided to work to promote a day that would honor all mothers. In 1908, Anna celebrated the first Mother's Day with a speech in the church where her mother had taught. She designated white carnations as a symbol of a mother's love, as carnations were her mother's favorite flower. The concept of Mother's Day caught on quickly because Jarvis was a zealous letter writer. She wrote to the president, she wrote to politicians, she wrote to dignitaries. She was soon assisted by deep-pocketed backers like John Wanamaker of Wanamaker's Department Store and H.J. Hines of Ketchup fame. The floral industry fully supported the movement and Anna Jarvis accepted their donations and spoke at their conventions. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed legislation officially designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Anna Jarvis had finally realized her dream. 
But that dream started becoming a cash cow for corporations. In the beginning, carnations cost half a penny each. Four years later, florists were charging 15 cents each. Greeting card companies started issuing Mother's Day cards. The confectionery industry began creating Mother's Day chocolates. Soon, Anna Jarvis quit her job as the first female advertising editor at an insurance company to campaign full-time against the commercialization of Mother's Day. To her, Mother's Day was to be a day of sentiment. She encouraged people to spend the day with their mothers or write them loving letters. Now, all she saw was profiteering. Beginning in 1920, she urged people to stop buying flowers. She couldn't stand those who sold or used greeting cards. She even turned against her commercial supporters. One day, while dining in the Wanamaker's department store, she saw they were offering a Mother's Day salad. She ordered it, dumped it on the floor, left the money for it, and marched out. She threatened lawsuits. She tried to trademark a carnation with the words Mother's Day, but was denied. Jarvis referred to florists, greeting card companies, and candy makers as, quote, charlatans, bandits, pirates, racketeers, kidnappers, and termites that would undermine with their greed one of the finest and noblest of celebrations. FTD, the floral company, offered her a lucrative commission on the sale of all Mother's Day carnations as a peace offering, which only infuriated her further. She spent the next years going door-to-door for signatures to rescind Mother's Day. Older, worn, and frail from the long fight, Anna Jarvis spent her last days deeply in debt, living in a sanatorium. She regretted the commercialization until the day she died in 1948. Anna Jarvis was the mother of Mother's Day, but never married and never became a mother. And she was never told one interesting fact. The bill for her time in the sanatorium was paid for by a group of grateful florists. When directors lost control of their films, they were able to take their name off the credits, use the Alan Smithy pseudonym, and walk away anonymously. But inventors rarely got that option. Victor Gruen's shopping mall became a suburban cliché. Orville and Wilbur Wright's invention has become a big chapter in military history. Philo Farnsworth's invention was often referred to as an idiot box. Robert Propp's cubicles have been called satanic offices. And Anna Jarvis's beloved Mother's Day has turned into a $21 billion sales frenzy. That was the consistent theme today. Each inventor lost control of their creations. And the way their inventions went on to be used and misconstrued broke their hearts. That's one of the most unwieldy aspects of marketing. You create a product, you inform the public, you put it into the marketplace, and it's out of your hands. The world will do with it what the world wants. As they say, the herd will be heard. It makes you wonder what kind of a world it might have been if only we had listened to those inventors. But it's hard to hear them when you're under the influence. I'm Terry O'Reilly. 
Under the Influence was recorded at Pirate Toronto. Series producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Sound engineer, Keith Oman. Theme music by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. Research, Abby Forsyth. See all the visuals from this episode at cbc.ca slash under the influence. See you next week. This episode brought to you by Singer's complete line of fine vacuum cleaners. Remember, Mother, with the gift of a lifetime. Um, do you wear clothes when you listen to our show? If so, have we got a t-shirt for you. Go to terryoreilly.ca slash shop. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com